Welcome to episode five of Virtually Relevant. I'm Eric. I'm Josh. This is Kevin. I'm Ted. Hey, I'm William. This is the podcast of the Houston VR community. Uh, this week we're doing another deep dive, and what we're focusing on this time is what it'll take for VR to really break into the mainstream. Uh, so let's let's just go ahead and throw that out there. What what would mainstream VR look like? Uh, for for mainstream VR, it's it's definitely a widespread adoption, right? When you talk about widespread adoption of of a technology, you you think about um, the beginning of the the personal computers, the beginning of smartphones. Um, what really kicked that off as a technology for putting it in everybody's hands, putting in their mindset of how do they interact with it on a day to day basis? And there's definitely some gaps that virtual reality has to uh, bridge. But I, I definitely think that some of the technologies that are coming out now or that are already existing are starting to put us in that um, arena. So I'm going to go with the counterintuitive, I guess, or counter um, popular comparison, which is a lot of people like to compare the what, it, what VR is doing to the mobile phone age. Um, and if we're talking about like mainstream adoption, I think we're looking closer to uh, consoles. I think those are really going to give you more of a clearer indication of like what it's going to take to get through that zeitgeist. Um, so I compare it more to early days of the home console, like the Nintendo, the Segas, you know, uh, Atari's, you know, all these all these home consoles that that came out and sold, you know, X million units. Um, because I feel like that's probably the more apt thing, at least short term. Um, now everybody, almost everyone has a console in their house. But like when I was growing up, you know, two out of every three people had a Nintendo or a Sega. Um, and that's how you knew it was it was sort of mainstream to have a console, even if the parents didn't use it, even if it was just the kids playing games or it was just, you know, being used for what it was being used for, which was games. I think right now, if you're talking about the mainstream market, you're looking at gaming and you're going to be looking at closer to the console world of evolution to see what when you can measure success. Yeah, I think that's a fair point because, I mean, it it sort of depends on what role we're assigning VR in the culture, what constitutes you know mainstream adoption. If, if we're assuming it's being used primarily for games, then I think you're spot on with saying you know console uptake is is kind of the the uh yardstick by which we're measuring it if you're wanting it to have sort of a deeper cultural significance if it's being used for communication and collaboration and so on then i would suspect it would need to be a step more than that and that doesn't mean it can't go mainstream in one arena and then go mainstream in others at a later date um but yeah i do think that uh going mainstream in the gaming community is is likely to precede uh it uh, going mainstream in other ways i want to toss out that i i enjoy that you bring up console gaming as kind of a a a way of understanding mainstream adoption because how how many years do we um remain tethered through a cable to our our consoles through our controllers and uh, how long do we expect to stay tethered to our VR systems? Right. I mean, you're really talking, 
when I think about VR and, and sort of like its growth and evolution over the last few years, I look at it comparative to the consoles, right? Like you just pointed out, how long were we tethered to the console? Well, the first like stock wireless controllers, not like buying it separately and adding on paying more, but the first like it came out of the box wireless was the PlayStation 3 uh, and the Xbox 360, that generation, which is only one generation back from where we are now which is kind of crazy to think about how long um, these consoles have been around. So we were dealing with, you know, stock wired uh, controllers for, let's see, uh, if you count 87 as the NES release, then we're talking at least 20 years, um, roughly. So, I mean... Close to 30, really. Yeah, um... Because uh, uh, PlayStation just had his their uh, 25th birthday uh, right. last so, week. <laughs> so if I'm going from like 87, 20 years, you know, difference is 2007, which if I remember right, was right around the time the 360 uh, and the PS3 came out. I think they were like yeah. 06, 05, somewhere in that range. So yeah, just about 20 years of innovation yeah. and growth for, for the consoles to really go, okay, now input is wireless. We've, we've mastered that. Now, if you if you talk about third party or even first party additional cost wireless options, then you can go back to like the GameCube with the WaveBird controllers and some of the old uh, 2.4 gigahertz wireless controller options that you plugged in. Um, you know, those existed around the time of the t uh, PlayStation 2, which um, is early 2000s, um, late 90s, early 2000s that that area. So it's certainly there. Um, you know, within that time frame. But if we're comparing those and that's sort of the metric we're using, then yeah, we're what now? We're six years, almost seven years in. Um, if we count the launch, then we're, we're almost four years in from the official launch of, of the Oculus Rift. Um, you know, technology wise, we're four years in and we're, I think essentially though, I want to bring it back to what, what Eric was saying is right. that, um, while, while gaming is a great um, beacon to to look towards, and it definitely moves the needle, right, uh, industry-wide, right. uh, arguably in, in any metric, but for it to be mainstream, for the things that I think that immersive technology is important for, it's not just gaming, right? It's, it's, it's transformative in all the industries and and all the modalities that we work with technology across the board. So while I, I, I get what you're saying, that's where I guess maybe we differ is just, so I think of when I, when I think of mainstream and, and that's the, that's the question that we need to ask right now really is what do we consider mainstream? What does each person consider mainstream? Because if you think about, computers in the mainstream, right? If if by that same token, you consider mainstream PC adoption, it's it hasn't hit for it didn't hit until late 2000s. You know, there was still several households who didn't have a computer, who didn't have the internet. You know, so that's a thing of what do you what is the mark of mainstream or what is the mark of okay this is now this is broken through 
you know, we, we've finally hit that mark and that's the question to ask. So for me, the idea is it's fairly ubiquitous. And if you walked into any household in America, chances are one out of every five or at least two to three out of every five is going to have some form of that technology, whether that's desktop, laptop, et cetera, you know, whether we're talking mobile VR or, or, or desktop class, that, that would be the, the quote unquote mainstream, um, where if you ask any person on the street, they at least know what it is. They may not have it, um, for various reasons due to, you know, the social inequalities and things like that. But the ability to say, oh yeah, I know what that is. I've used it. I don't have one, but I, I went to the library and they had it or something like that. That's when you hit that mainstream mark for me. So Ted, you've, you've been pretty quiet. What, what, what metrics would you use to measure whether it's gone mainstream? Yeah, I'd have to agree with uh, William on that. I think that uh, the metric is going to be that everybody either has one in their home or everyone's at least tried it or, you know, has a, or yeah, it's got to even be beyond knowing someone who's, who's used it or has one. Every, everyone's have to, has to have tried it. And gaming is going to be one of the most, wide uh, adoption uh i guess uh what i'm trying to say is <laughs> it's going to be one of the uh the easiest ways for people to to get used to it and to use it on a, a daily basis and to see it everywhere and one of the things that's going to be uh, crucial to that i believe is going to be the asymmetrical multiplayer games to where your game nights you know you're moving away from the board games are you know, you, maybe you've got a board game night and you've got a multiplayer night where it's just all centered around the VR and everyone's able to play whether there's one headset there or multiple headsets. And that's really going to bring it into the mainstream market. You know, there was a, a question that got asked in my office. My office has recently converted over <clears throat> to being very focused on VR. But there's only a couple of us in the office that were traditionally part of the VR community. So suddenly, you know, we have all these people who now have headsets and are showing them off to friends and family. And uh, at a staff meeting this last week, we asked, how many of you know someone outside of this immediate circle who has a VR headset? And other than the, the couple of us that are inside the bubble, no one did. Uh, they were like, oh, no, I mean, people know about it, especially younger people know about it. But uh, almost no one that they knew had one. So I think it's it's definitely still pretty niche at this point, but um, and I do think it has to cross you know some demographic barriers. It has to get outside of that sort of very techie uh, early adopter bubble, and you know I, people like you know your your aunts and uncles and so on that they they oh well I I saw it on TV and I went and, and bought it. So what are the the barriers that people see? You know, from the, the technology as we have it right now, what is stopping it from going mainstream? Well, let's start with Kevin this time. Uh, let's see. Stopping it from going mainstream. Um, one of the main problems that I usually hear is, oddly enough, the older generations are kind of reluctant to try it. Um, yeah. To, to me, personally, in a way, it doesn't quite make sense. Uh, what, what, what have y'all heard? So, I, and, and I know y'all have kind of heard about that. So, so what have y'all heard of possible reasons of, of why 
they don't really like to try it. Well, I mean, I can give you a, a one that's pretty, not pretty common, but at least semi-common. Um, case in point, I'm, like you mentioned, Eric, very in the bubble. I am, I am yeah. fully in VR, right? Um, we, we all are. Right. So <laughs> my wife will not generally do VR outside of our house. Like she won't yeah. do it anywhere other than home. Um, and that's two reasons, largely. The first of which is she doesn't like the idea of being blindfolded in front of strangers. Which right. is effectively what you're asking someone to do. You're saying, here, put this very high-tech blindfold on front on yourself and pay no attention to the world around you. Um, which can be a, a problem for some people, especially if you have social anxiety or anything like that that may prevent you from, you know, not wanting to not know what's going on in your surroundings. So that can be a very nerve-wracking thing. Um, it's also a potentially isolating thing, you know, saying like, okay, well, let's not, you're not going to interact with the people around you, especially if you're in a social setting. Um, you're, you're now like, oh, well, everyone's just staring at me. This is, this is weird. You know, I don't want to be the center of attention. And, and that brings up that, that possibility again. It's always interesting when we do demos uh, in public places like at Comic-Con or, um, sometimes at the meetups, but uh, generally when we do like some of our outreach things, when you get a group of people, if you get one guy walking up or one girl walking up uh, and interested, a lot of times they'll they'll try it. Um, if you get two, three, maybe you know a small group, a lot of times it's like, oh no, I don't want to do it. You do it. You do it. I don't want to do it. You do it. You do it. But if yeah. you get like a group of people, almost no one wants to try it. And you can always pick out the the very extroverted person because it's always that person who's like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. You know, no big deal. They're the person who wants to be in the spotlight and have that, you know, that attention on them. They're, they're used to it. Um, and everyone else is just kind of like, no, I don't want to do it. I'll, I just want to watch. I just want to watch. Like I had a group of high school kids walk up to us in a meetup uh, and like none of them wanted to do it. None of them wanted to put it on. They were all very interested in it. And they were like, this is really cool. This is awesome. But none of them wanted to do it except for one kid who was like, yeah, okay, I'll try it. And, you know, he hopped in and everybody watched and played and pulled out their phones and everything. But it seems to be very, um, like a, it's a very socially isolating or like it's, it's a risk, you know, right now for people. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's, I mean, there's, there's layers to that risk. Um, the, the social acceptance isn't high. People, seeing someone in VR is not the norm. And people are afraid they'll look foolish. People are afraid that they're going to be made fun of, that people are going to be filming them on their phones and laughing at them and so on. And I've had people, you know, just straight up say that. Um, and, you know, as you said, you know, they're, they're putting a blindfold on in a public place. There's sort of a sense of personal security there as well. Um Especially in the early days, we really had problems. You put a headset on someone and their friends would immediately start messing with them. I mean, they'd start, you right. know, poking at them and, 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 you know, grabbing them and so on, which is, you know, it's not cool. <laughs> and, um, so people are rightly worried that they'll get messed with. And, um, it also doesn't help that the, the mainstream, like, sort of popularity of the original DK1, DK2, were these videos on YouTube of people jacking with people while they were in a roller coaster yes. simulator, you know, like no one that that's a lot of people's first sort of introduction to the idea of, of modern virtual reality. And they don't want to be the butt of that joke. They don't want to end right. up on YouTube. Yeah. People terrified or uh, falling over or yes. getting sick. Yeah, definitely didn't, didn't help things there. So but I, what... I think this all goes along with being a part of the early adopters, right? I think, I think we're really close to, 
the those that that populace of people that are it's it really a, a niche of a niche um when you when you google search the word mainstream it comes up with the ideas, attitudes, or activities that are regarded as normal or conventional, the dominant trend in opinion, fashion, or the arts. So when you when you think about mainstream, right, do you really think about what your grandparents are saying is mainstream, or, or do you think about what your peers and colleagues and what's what's going on in social media around you, what's going on in the news around you? What's happening generally in the in, in the population that you you happen upon as you go throughout your day to day, and I, I think that it is definitely trending upward. I mean, I'm I'm definitely seeing a lot more Quest advertisements. I'm seeing a lot more VR advertisements. I'm seeing Popular Mechanics magazines talking about uh, how virtual reality is changing things. Immersive technologies are are infiltrating all walks of life. Um, so I, I want to bring it back full circle to the idea that um, while it can come off originally as socially isolating, um, the, the, the concept that we can bridge out of that, that we can do things like what Ted brought up is asynchronous gameplay where someone's in an immersive headset and, and other people are interacting with that person um, in different ways um, is definitely starting to take those next steps beyond what the DK1 showed us as poking and prodding that that person that's doing this new weird thing. Right. Yeah. Ted mentioned one other thing that I have frequently heard expressed, uh, which is uh, people concerned about getting nauseous. And uh, while, you know, quite a lot of that has been addressed by, you know, improvements to the hardware and best practices and so on, that reputation has stuck around. And so I think a lot of people are still kind of wary thinking, ah, you know, I get motion sick easily. I'm not really sure I want to put that on and, and potentially feel sick. But when we talk about, you know, social acceptance, although <clears throat> some of that's just, you know, the more people see it in action, the more normal it will seem and, and the less attention it will draw. Uh, I'm actually a big believer that we need to make some changes to the hardware and the software to um, conditionally increase local awareness. I, I was very, very excited when I put the Quest on and it had pass-through video. Uh, I would very much like to you know, be a, a button press away from turning that on and off and even having it so that... Because, I mean, it, it has to know when people are in your space because it has to factor them out when it's mapping the walls and you know using this for positional tracking. So you could set a sensitivity zone saying if, if someone walks up to you within five feet, pause the game and cut them in, you know, unless you're on do not disturb. Um, just the ability to, you know, interact with people who are local and not feel completely blind, I think would go a long way towards making people feel a lot more comfortable. I think that's a great uh, way to bring up uh, Vario just brought out, uh, officially announced uh, the sale of their XR1 headset is the first headset that allows sub 10 millisecond um, full augmented reality pass through. Um, for ten thousand dollars well it's 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 not cheap <laughs> right but getting access to a headset that allows you to have fully immersive experiences that um, you can have full body uh, full embodiment right bring your hands and your arms and everything into the experience in true mixed reality not not what people have called mixed reality up until this point but uh 
truly change the the way that you interact with the digital environment is definitely the herald of what is coming down the pike. Right. Once that kind of a feature is available in the 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 five hundred dollar headsets, that's when we'll see something like that be more yeah more more of a reasonable thing right now i mean let's be honest a ten thousand dollar headset is never going to be the mainstream headset um but it's pioneers features that are going to trickle down yeah that's i mean that's the thing is like the supercomputers are the things that built the backs of the personal computers like that's it rolls downhill um so eventually hopefully that's a feature that we'll see in your average headset and I'll be honest, I'm hoping, and it's, it's funny because the the focus, because it's so gaming focused and it's so sort of like individual gaming focused rather than sort of locally social, um, some of these features haven't been the focus. They're not focused on body presence. It does bother people that they look down and they don't see their body. And when you see people walking around in VR, especially when they're not used to it, they walk very gingerly and very carefully because it's weird not being able to see your your legs and your feet as you're walking around. Um, and then even when you're interacting with people socially in VR, the fact that there's no, no facial tracking, you're not getting facial expressions and so on, uh, it makes it socially awkward. It's like talking to mannequins. It doesn't feel natural. So I think that at whatever point those those sort of mixed reality features start uh, hitting the the sub five hundred dollar headsets, uh, I think a lot of people will start feeling a lot more comfortable. I'm also going to throw out one more thing in the the local accept social acceptance uh, front. It's weird talking to someone when you can't see their eyes. Uh, so the fact that somebody's got this box on their face, and even if they can see you through pass-through video, the fact that you can't see their eyes is kind of um off-putting um i have some hope I, I haven't seen anyone really play with this yet but i have some hope that being able to sort of mirror someone's eyes on a screen on the outside so that you can see them even though they're you know directly hidden might make that more comfortable i'd love to see some experiments done with that to see if that's creepy or whether that's more comfortable Go- googly eyes with every headset I- Look, people I've got slap googly eyes on there for a reason. <laughs> I have googly eyes on my Vive. Like, yeah, totally. it, it adds a little bit of, of, of that. But like, Humor. there's a reason that in Ready Player One, anytime people were in VR, they, you know, they sort of gave you this like pass through view of their face because it was weird. You know, it's weird to to try and like if you were going to watch a two hour movie and every time they showed people in in VR, they didn't show some approximation of their face or something like that. It would have just been really weird to just stare at someone in a headset for minutes at a time trying to perceive their emotion or things like that so i mean there's certainly something to be said for that um but so so that's the social acceptance or or what that needs um so what about the ubiquity the usability of of these devices quest has taken huge leaps to that and the ability to just like pop it on you're good to go you know you jump right in like the days of so easy snap, to set up, right. The days of snapping your phone into it and doing all these extra steps and, Oh, now it's got to run an update. And, oh, my phone battery's dead. You know, all these things like the, the quest, it's one of those things where the go did good at it. Well, you know, was, was good at it. It, it, it had more buy-in. The quest seems to have had substantially better, retention and they mentioned that at oculus connect that, yeah you know once people put it on they're they're more willing to come back to it because it's so easy 
Um, they're not having to go and set up a computer and run updates and do this and do that. You know, it all just kind of happens in the background and you just pop it on and you're ready to go. We used to get questions all the time about, you know, as, as people would come in and would try the tech at, at the meetups and so on, they would say, wow, this is amazing. You know, would you, would you recommend I get this? What headset would you recommend I get? And, you know, if they were, if they weren't particularly technical people, if they didn't have, you know, already have a gaming PC and so on, I was actually really hesitant to recommend it. The Quest is the first headset that I feel comfortable recommending to anyone. Uh, if they tried it and they liked it, then I think there's no reason they shouldn't just go and get one, as if assuming they have the, the funds available. Because, you know, you don't have to manage graphics drivers. You don't have to, you know, worry about whether your USB port is is compatible, whether you're chaining the headset off the right video port, uh, all this stuff that's just that you don't want to have people having to battle through. It just goes away and it is more console like it's just plug and play. And it's even better because I mean, you know, you can take it anywhere. You throw it in a backpack, you take it out, you put it on. The the friction is very low. So, um, Ted, you've, right. you've, you've helped run an arcade before. What are your, what's your take on this? Yeah, well, kind of chiming in on what Eric was saying, I think the the Go actually serves a very uh, important focus for uh, the barrier to entry. Because, like I said, the Quest is amazing. It's it's where we want everybody to be. It's where you're going to get a great experience and where you're going to want to come back. But if the price point is still too high for you at that point, you know, where you're more casual and, you know, less of an enthusiast, then there's still the Go there where it, it can at least replace, you know, kind of someone laying in bed with with their phone propped up trying to you know watch Netflix or something it would be a, a great fit in there for just consuming media or you know for lower end usage right yeah that's that's the first time I've really heard someone mention you know price prominently do we feel like that you know 400 500 price point is a price point that can reach the mainstream or is it going to have to come down further than that I, I don't know like the the original Nintendo was the equivalent of $800 as a console. I, I, I don't think that the market is quite as sensitive to mainstream adoption as far as technology goes um, to, to price. Now, a new technology, price definitely helps, right? The, the Quest being at $400 is amazing, um, all said and done. But I, I don't I don't think it's, it's necessarily the the main thing i think the the quest and the go being so easy to get in and out of is really what drives adoption so i'm going to i'm going to disagree with you in part um and the reason being is that yes the price honestly i love the price of the quest i think it's a fantastic price it's right along the lines of what you'd pay for a game console you know, it's it's a little more expensive, but for its newer technology, you kind of expect that. It's it's closer to what the you know the modern consoles are coming out of, out of the gate. I think it's priced um, too low. I think it's well, but see, here's the thing: if we're talking about mainstream adoption, if we're talking about accessibility, four hundred dollars, five hundred dollars is still out of the price range of many many people. Yeah, and so th- and that's we- the concern. When we do the demos and, and people get very excited and say, is this available now? Can I buy right. it? It's like, yeah, you can go to Best Buy. You can buy this. How much is it? I'll say, well, you know, $400 for the base model. And you see the gears turning. It's it's right at that price point where it's not a, oh, heck yeah, I'm doing that immediately. Right. Uh, but it's also within stretching range for a lot of people. Um, you know, most people don't drop 400 bucks casually, but it's 
it's an amount you can do if you're excited about something and you want it badly enough and you're willing to wait and save up. Okay. Right. So, but, but how long ago were people paying readily paying two to $3,000 for their flat screen TVs? How many people today right now are paying post $1,000 for their smartphone? Right? So I, I agree that a, a VR headset is not something as, as necessary or, or as prevalent as either of those technologies. Um, for it to be a, a third or a fourth of the cost is downright a, a steal of a bargain. So, but you bring up a good point, right? So the the $1,000 smartphone, how many people do you know who actually pay $1,000 for that smartphone outright? Very few. Most people pay subsidized costs right. through their carrier. They pay payment plans, things like that. Those options aren't available for, for VR. I agree with you that we're getting what we're getting at a steal. However, oh, yeah. it is no, still it's... out of the price point range for lower class families or people who can't necessarily afford to drop $400 at any given time. And that's the, the, the hurdle that I see as a particularly big one for the major, the mainstream, the majority of people. When you get to a point where everybody can afford it, which maybe there's some subsidy program or maybe there's a payment plan program or there's layaway or whatever to get those things. And that's how a lot of people do that. Um, you know, they go to like cons and they, they don't buy a $1,500 TV outright. They go to cons and they spend $40 a month on their brand new TV. You know, they, they wait for a black Friday sale and they get it, you know, 50% off and they, they, they spend their Christmas bonus on it. Um, but it's a harder sell to say a thousand dollars on a TV when everyone can view it at once versus a VR headset that only one person can use at a time has a limited battery life and you've got to pay for content. You know, that's there, that's there a good point because you know, a TV is something that, you know, a whole bunch of people can get use out of at the same time. Whereas a VR headset really is only useful to one person. And if you want multiple people in VR, you're going to need multiple headsets, which multiplies it. I will say that I think that, that four or $500 price point, while it, it is a lot of money for a lot of people and it is a stretch for a lot of people in in Western countries, in the United States, I think if the experience gets compelling enough that it can get mainstream adoption at that price point. However, it's worth noting that huge chunks of the world's population, if we're talking about world popularity, are in you know countries, you know, India and China where, you know, per capita spending is nowhere near what it is right. in the US and 4 or 500 dollars is just not going to happen it's just flatly out of reach but china um, it's three times the adoption rate of vr than it is in the US well in china it's huge uptake at uh like arcades. vr cafes and arcades it's location based you get you know staggering uptake there because people can't afford it in the home but they are so excited about it to go try it somewhere central right a perfect example of that is south korea right personal computing is not big or was not big for the longest time in south korea gaming was not big in south korea until you had the innovation of gaming cafes and internet cafes and even still you know that's that's how it works is a lot of people don't have these big beefy gaming computers at home they go to this these gaming cafes and they play on that equipment they pay by the time now granted over time they're paying more they're paying more in the end but that's that's just a cultural difference well so, here's here's another part the huge part of this equation um is that uh when we talked about tvs and consoles right they have 
a plethora of content, right? Mm -hmm. They have an, an overabundance of content so much to the point that you, you really don't know what you want to consume because you have more than you know what to choose from. Whereas because immersive technology is relatively a, a burgeoning market, um, you, you don't have that same smattering of different genres to choose from that have hundreds upon hundreds upon thousands of hours even of, of content to, to dive into without ever seeing the, the end of it. We, you have some AAA titles, you have some AA titles, and you have a, a huge selection of indie titles that range from great to what the hell were you thinking? Um, but there, there's it's still because of its its, its infancy and or toddlership or however you want to put it, it it does have some want. Right, that's what makes me think of the like the original Nintendo era. Right, you had in the in the original Nintendo, you had maybe 30, 40 games that were absolutely fantastic. Seventy to eighty percent of those were first party titles. Right. Everything else was just absolute shovelware crap. Um, and and that's the way it was, right? There, Sure, there were... If you go back and you look up any ROM collection, there are like 400 games for the Nintendo. <laughs> yeah. No one 800. played 400. Oh, yeah, it's closer to eight, right? There, No one played those 800 games. And 60 to 70% of them are absolute garbage. I beg to differ, <laughs> sir. <laughs> really? Really? ET was obviously the best one ever made. Orb 3D. Orb 3D on the Nintendo. A 3D game. But that's my point, right? You had some gems in there. You had some good ones, but mostly it was crap. And we're seeing similar, right? There's a lot of stuff where people are like, I just, I made a VR game and it's, I don't want to dog any developer. It is, it is tough to do what they do. It is not an easy thing. That being said, once you know what you're doing, it is extremely easy to just shovel out crap. And we see that on platforms like Steam, where it's just, hey, here's this VR game. And it is, you know, I just grabbed assets from the asset store, shoved it all together and pushed it out in, in a few days. Um, and, and those are the things that, that we look out for, right? So we turn to these lists. I, I don't, I don't think ahead. development is ever easy. Okay, I don't, I, don't, right. <laughs> I don't want to portray that. I think it is, it is easy for investors and business uh requirements to push content out before it hits what it's supposed to okay i think i think business needs push and demand more rather than developers wanting to push something that's not ready i disagree let's be honest we live in a world now where forty thousand clash of clans clones or exist in the app store you know every you know there's there are all of these oh there that idea was successful let's make a similar idea and, and shove it out the door the, those yep. those dev houses exist and it's a hundred percent a thing and it's yeah, not because of debacle was a right <laughs> right <laughs> you know, this is not it's not a matter of like investors or outside pressure it's hey let's push a game out and if we sell you know a hundred copies at 10 bucks a piece and nobody, you know, and, and we refund half of them because people realize it's crap. 
hey, at least we made, you know, this much okay. money. And, and they I'll, do so that for 40 games. I'll concede that, but I, I think that it's <laughs> it's not the developers or the creators or the inventors of the world that are, are making right. those no. decisions. I think it's the, no. the, like I said, it's the investors or the people that are trying to see a return on what they're putting into the market that is making that decision. Uh, I, I definitely agree that there's plenty of copycats and, and clones of something that works. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of wisdom in that, but uh, at the same time, I, I don't think that uh, just because a con- content is pushed out or content that is, is available that is not necessarily ready um, is the decision of the, the the creators is what I'm trying to say. Oh, I 100% agree. Nothing done in good faith is is you know worth uh, you know discrediting. But I'm just I'm just pointing out like the the reality of of the app market and this and the gaming market right now, especially the online platforms, is that there's a lot of crap. And some of it is people did their best. They pushed, you know, they, they, they released it because they wanted to release it. And that's perfectly fine. I have no problem with those people. But there are certainly dev houses who they just throw a prototype together, push it out, put slap a $5 price tag on it, and hope somebody's dumb enough to, to, to do it. So let's let's loop this back to mainstream adoption. You see two very different models. Uh, you know, in Steam, if you filter by VR, you get... An incredible number of titles, a small fraction of which are exceptionally good. And then you go over to the Quest, which is very tightly curated. For reaching mainstream adoption, what do people feel like is the the right place to land on that spectrum between you know Wild West and you know it's it's very low barrier of entry for producing content, or you know a very tightly curated walled garden. For widespread adoption, I definitely have to go with the uh, Oculus side, because I mean, like, if you were to get a Quest right now, there there's more content than the average person would have money to spend on, <laughs> and there's great right. options available there. So I mean, you could spend at least a couple of months of buying, you know, several games a month, and still not run out of content to buy and have have some really really great fun games that you can play. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna side that that side too. Um, I mean, curation can be bad. It can be exclusionary, and it can be a problem. And I think, you know, exclusion is the biggest concern. There's there's a reason that Nintendo did things the way they did in the early days. And if you if you check out the book uh, Console Wars, it goes into a lot of it, and it's a really good book about the early days of gaming and Nintendo was extremely um, protective of the way that they released games. And a lot of that had to do with them wanting to keep uh, getting a cut from all games released on their platform, which obviously has its financial ramifications. But another part of it was them controlling the content that was available on their devices. You know, they viciously went after a couple of companies who tried to reverse engineer their lockout chips and bypass it and sell their stuff without, without them involved. Um, and you're seeing a similar sort of platform way of doing things with the Oculus, especially with the quest. You've got side quest, which is a secondary market, which I think is fantastic, especially for Indies to be able to get their content in front of people. Um, but at the same time, 
you there are steps required to do that there are you know there are hassles that are not necessarily everybody's going to do it right um, no in fact i think that you know the the uptake for for side quest in the the general population is going to be very close to nil i i do like the fact that if you go into the the store in the oculus quest you almost can't pick a bad title i mean there are some that are definitely way better than others but i mean it's it's there's not anything that's a complete dud uh so you feel pretty comfortable just saying you know pick something that looks interesting if you watch the preview video you look at the ratings it looks good just go for it um whereas on steam you know if, if you start paging down to the the lesser known titles there's there's some real duds in there um I do wish that there was a better balance where you could go in and you could throw a switch and say, you know, open it up to the Wild West, kind of like they, they did with the the Rift, um, and have a little easier access to a wider market. Because I know that the, the bar is set very high for the Quest, and there's a lot of people who have work in progress or have, you know, smaller games that have a um, maybe a, a niche market for them. And they've they've been pretty harsh about saying if this doesn't have you know general appeal, uh, like you know, I've got a, a 360 camera I use at work, an Insta 360 Pro, and the the company submitted a, a player for their their video, and they uh, they said no because they said that you know it was it was too niche of an application, and that that's a real challenge because okay I, I actually want to play this stuff back on a Quest, um, so you have to end up sideloading it, which is a pain. Right, so, I mean that's. Hmm that's kind of the concern is if you have to go through all these hoops, like I like curation to some degree. I like being able to know that what I'm get what I'm going to get is going to be worthwhile. Um, but at the same time, like you point out, it's how much is too much. And right. the Oculus has had issues at least in recent history from what we've seen from, you know, sort of the dev sphere on Twitter and things of published developers getting their stuff rejected because, you yeah. Know, oh well, we don't think it's going to do well on the quest, or well, oh, we don't think it fits. And so, like, it's how what where's that line of okay, how you know what specifically do we need to meet, and you know where where is how much is too much? Because to some degree, it's it's gatekeeping. It's not so much curation as it is gatekeeping, and and that's where you start to get fuzzy for me that I, I'm not really comfortable with. But Josh, you were trying to say something. Yeah, let's look at let's look at a similar market, right? In technology, uh, according to IDC in, in early 2019, um, Android had 86 percent of smartphones worldwide, whereas Apple had the remaining 14 percent. But in the same Q1 for revenue, Google Play had 7.1 billion versus Apple's 12.4 billion. So. I think that it speaks volumes for what happens when you have a curated walled garden market that is done properly. Does that uh, include uh, iTunes? Uh, it doesn't doesn't uh, directly say that in, the, in what I'm looking at here, but uh, I don't. That'd I, be I think it's specifically factor. pertaining to their app stores. Uh, if, if I don't know if okay. Apple's rolls in iTunes into their app store, but. Um, right, because I mean the, that's a huge even, difference. Even if <laughs> even if it does, like the the fourteen percent of the market, even if it does include iTunes sales, um, says a lot for what happens when you have a specifically curated market. You uphold a very high standard of quality, 
and you do everything in your power to ensure customer experience is upheld to your uh, metrics of standards. Out of curiosity, anybody in here a uh, an Apple user, or iPhone user? Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Not so, anymore, but I've got an extensive history with Apple. <laughs> right. So I I had an iPhone. Uh, I jumped ship from there around the 4S era. But um, Josh, you said you use one. Yeah, I I don't know if I really want to start that 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 kind of flame war. <laughs> no, no, honestly, I don't want to. I don't want to start a flame war. Um, I, I'm I, just curious because just bring it up because it's a, it's it's a relevant technical market that that yeah. showcases some of the same things. Right. The reason I ask is because you know with the Android market, you've got eighty percent. You said or eighty six percent of the market is is Android. And uh, I'm an IT guy, right? That's my day job. The majority of our users are Android. A few are iPhone because they don't want to deal with anything else. They just want just the core experience. They want it to be the same every time. And that's where Apple shines. Um, The majority of our users never install more than a couple extra apps beyond the core experience. And that's on both sides, Apple and, and Android. Um, but I'd be very curious because it's, it's, it's an interesting topic. It's, it's not so much an in, a difference of, to me, curation of the App Store as it is a difference of sort of the culture or the mentality of the different users. Because there, there, there are people who are very passionate about Apple and there are people who are very passionate about Android. And they are different people, like to the core. So well, it's very interesting. It's it's very it's very much like the Sega Nintendo. Pertaining games, to this like. topic, though, pertaining to right. mainstream topic. So, do how you many think people do you think are ever going to? How many people do you think are ever going to install the side quest in the mainstream? Very few, actually. And that's the thing: is what what is the discovery method of? content for people for the users right right now we live in a world where content discovery is what's on the front page of the store that i'm using or uh, a large group and a lot of us in the early days of the of the rift was hey my favorite youtuber played this or right hey this vr youtuber played this and it looked really awesome so i want to try it like that's how i find maybe 30 percent of my games i mean I don't play that many games these days with kids and a family and everything, but you know, the games I do play and the games I do buy by and large, I, I pick up because I watched a, a let's play or I saw, you know, someone playing it. And I was like, man, this looks really fun. I'd, I'd like to do this. Or I just happened upon it on the front page. I was like, Oh, that looks interesting. Let me dig a little deeper. Um, or I look up top 10 lists and I think those are, are, are very important to the discovery of content more so than you know direct curation uh of stores it's it's how do you discover your content personally and and what does that speak you know how does that speak to you like ted how do you find your your vr content how do you find new experiences to try i'm curious everybody actually but ted do you want to start 
Yeah, actually, I think uh, both sides of the coin are, are really important there. For every Apple, we do need an Android. And while Oculus is going to be great for, uh, for getting those initial people in and getting them good content, then, yeah, we are going to need those competitors. You know, we've we've seen them, you know, with the, the Oculus and the Vive, you know, we all know those aren't the only ones out there. There are all these other smaller ones creeping up, and that's just going to become more and more apparent as as time goes on and eventually we'll see that one that that you know gives the quest a run for its money and has probably has more of that android side feel where the smaller developers have an easier time getting in there you know which will probably be where i'm <laughs> where yeah. i'm looking looking forward to as well for Me content too. creation but yeah, as far as where I get my content, it's it. You guys kind of hit it there. If it shows up on the front page, then uh, yeah, I'm gonna take a look at it. I'll watch uh, YouTube videos to see who's playing what, or more specifically, uh, top list, uh, top ten list, or upcoming list. Because I, if it's a game that I really want to play, I don't, I don't want to watch someone else, you know, play it and get the spoilers from their <laughs> point of view. Yeah, you don't <laughs> want to get that yeah, content. Really. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So well, let's uh, let's try and bring things back a little bit more towards the the mainstream adoption question. Let's look at where we are right now. We're at a, an interesting moment because we're heading into the holiday season. We just had uh, you know Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales. Oculus Go was topping a lot of the charts because it was on deep discounts. Without any discounts, the Oculus Quest has been sold out across you know most markets and is demanding a premium in the secondary market. Uh, you're seeing you know, advertising in, in for VR and during major sporting events and in front of uh, movies. So it's, it's getting a lot of attention and a lot of uptake. And Oculus has gone on the record saying the time is now. They say this generation, the quest, this is where we are going to try and push to dramatically broaden our base. Is the hardware that's out there right now good enough to go mainstream or is that not going to happen until we hit a true second generation what's everyone's thoughts um kevin yeah so man as it sits right now i would say it's not quite there yet but it feels like it's going to be right on the edge where it's it it to me it feels like this generation is going to push it just enough to to that critical mass kind of point and then whenever we get into the actual next generation type stuff uh then i think that's when the the, the powder keg is going to ignite and when people are really going to start jumping on board in kind of the the more mass adoption um also to, to go back a little bit uh what you had mentioned is i i, I was actually kind of surprised um uh, I, I originally heard a buddy of mine mention how he went all over houston looking for a headset and couldn't find one and he ended up getting now specifically it was the 64 gigabyte model the of the quest one. the cheaper one yes yes and and that was the last one that they had at the micro center here in Houston um and looking at websites uh, I, I was just checking before we started the podcast uh 
Best Buy, Micro Center, uh, Newegg, they're all sold out. Uh, Newegg actually had both the 64 and the 128 gigabyte model sold out. Uh, and if you go to Oculus's website right now, um, the buy now buttons are up. And if you click on them and you start the checkout process in the top right, it kind of gives you a little info. It's saying ships out by January 13th. Oh, wow. So to me, I don't think it's going to be arriving before <laughs> Christmas, if, if you ask me. I'm, I am 100% with Kevin on this. I mean, I think, I think this is a generation that's going to do very, very well. But I think Gen 2 is going to explode. Um, I don't know. Josh, what are your thoughts? I think the market, the producers, the hardware manufacturers need the time to be now. I think the consumers, the mainstream market, need it to be the Quest 2. Um, I, I, I just think that saturation needs a little bit more time. And you can't rush uh, these kinds of things. As much as I would love it to 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 be rushed i I definitely think that it it definitely for the mainstream market for the widespread populace it is going to take some more time to just marinate in everybody's everyday life i think it needs to permeate more in people's day-to-day work life i think more businesses need to adopt um, immersive technology um, units and stand up the the idea of how it works in their day-to-day work life. I think it needs to be uh, more acclimated to the arts and things beyond just gaming. But you know, if if you want a Quest right now, you can go on Amazon and spend. It looks like eight hundred and forty dollars and buy it now. <laughs> Ted. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I think it definitely Gen Two. Kind of agree with what Kevin's saying there that we're we're on the cusp, but there there are a couple little things. Uh, that will kind of um, give people that that little bit of pause uh, to to kind of go ahead and make the leap. And there are things that we hear uh, being complained about quite a bit, like the the comfort level. You know, we got to get that weight down just a little bit more, get that battery life up just a little bit more. And Which are two that... contradicting statements, to be honest. Like, <laughs> it needs to be lighter, but it needs to last longer. Like, uh Okay. <laughs> well, battery technology is is improving uh, uh right. every day. You know, they're getting a lot smaller, a lot more powerful, so it's it's definitely in the cards for that to happen. And the hand tracking too, like with when we get in the quest, I think that's that's going to be huge. Uh it's going to give people a lot more opportunities to make some, a lot more cooler stuff, a lot more useful stuff uh outside of gaming. And when that's just kind of, you know, uh regular in the Gen 2s gen 2 level that's going to make it easier to transition people who have never played before who aren't familiar with vr into vr because they don't have to worry about the controllers uh all the time at least i i will throw out there though that all this being said that chances are if you're listening to this uh podcast you're a, a little bit more forward thinking than most of the mainstream you're interested in what is coming and what the future has in hold for all of us as far as technology. And as far as that being said, I think the time is now. I think being a part of it now um, 
gets you more in line with what is coming and allows you to better acclimate and be better prepared for all the endeavors that are ahead of us. Uh, I'm proud to announce personally that um, my company uh, that I've launched, that I've been running with my partners, uh, Chad and Edgar, we've launched a, a lab with Houston Community College here to push that initiative, right? To bring future technology to the hands of students and people that are ready to recognize that this technology might not be 100% mainstream, but is primed and ready to become mainstream. And to be a part of it now puts you that much ahead of the competition. I agree. I think if you're, if you're, you know, in on it early, you're in a much better position. You've already had experience. Um, for me personally, when I think of like, you know, the question is, are we there yet? Is it going to be this, this generation or is it going to be the next? Um, I think I, I fit more in line with, with what Kevin mentioned that, you know, we're, we're going to get really close this gen. Um, next gen is kind of going to be what pushes us over. But for me, I think it's a, a little bit different reason. Um, I don't think the quest two is going to be the thing that pushes people over, over the edge or, you know, is going to be the thing that pushes, you know, adoption over the edge. I think the quest two is going to be the thing that enables other, you know, enables people who have um, maybe not as much money or things like that to be able to jump into this. And that's because of the secondhand market, you know, people are going to upgrade to the quest two, or people are going to upgrade to the rift two. And that's when everyone starts putting their quests and their rifts and their, you know, vibes and everything like that on Facebook and selling them at a deep discount. And personally, I mean, that's where I, that's kind of where I got into a lot of things is being able to get, you know, get this hardware that was still relevant, but not as expensive as it was when it first came out. You know, a couple years in, they start putting in deep discounts. The Quest was not discounted at all this Black Friday. It just launched. That makes 100%, you know, that makes a lot of sense. It makes, it, it's absolutely understandable. Next year, the year after that, the year Quest 2 comes out, we're going to start seeing deep discounts. And that's when you're going to see tons of people buying them because it's much more affordable. Um, and I think that's when you'll see that market saturation that you're, that you're talking about, Josh, is, is not just in the businesses, but you know, when everybody has one or when everybody can afford one or people who, who want one or are interested in one can afford one, whether that's the second hand, they're getting a quest and it still works for all the content. Now, the, the thing that concerns me about that is what is going to be the cutoff? You know, are we going to see cross-platform historical compatibility or are we going to see a hard cutoff like we do with consoles? And, and that's my biggest concern is I'm hoping things go the way of smartphones, right? Four, five generations are all able to use the same content without really any major thing. It's going to be snappier on the new stuff. It's going to look better on the new stuff, but it's still going to work. I really hope they don't end up going with something like consoles where, oh yeah, we'll cross sell, you know, a few titles, but you know, this is going to be quest two only, or this is going to be, you know, VR 2021 only, you know, and that's what I'd be concerned about for, for the larger market. You know, I, I know they want to sell their stuff, but that would be damaging for, for the, the adoption of VR. So we didn't have the iPhone until 2007, 
What do you right. what do you think that the year is um, for for that uh, mainstream widespread adoption? We're 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 you know a couple days away really from twenty twenty, the year of hindsight. Um, what uh, <laughs> what what do you think is the magic year? I want to add in a little bit on that. Is we didn't have the iPhone until two thousand seven. Most people didn't have the iPhone until probably oh nine, um, because. 0809 because they were so hard to get right and you could only get it when it first came out you could only get it i think with at&t um so there was a lot of like restrictions on that so i think closer to like the 3gs is the age of like a lot of people started to have them um i think we're probably looking for me personally in my view i think we're looking like 2023 2024 before we hit that like Everybody who wants one can get one. You know, it's it's in every store. Like, I think when Walmart starts to carry it, that's a bit, that's a good sign, right? Right now, Walmart does not carry, to the best of my knowledge, uh, the Oculus Quest in store. The only store, the only couple of stores I know about who actually carry it in store, are like Micro Center, Fries, Best Buy is actually pretty forward thinking on that and that they carry it. But like, you know, Target doesn't carry it. Um, Walmart doesn't carry it, your, your big box stores. And I think that's the key. Um, and I think we'll probably start to see that somewhere around 2022, 2023. I, I want to throw out though, that, uh, much like the AT&T exclusivity with the original iPhone, Best Buy had exclusivity with the, the Oculus. Right. So when that expires and Walmart and, and Target start to get them, that's going to do, that's going to be a huge leap forward. For at, massive. at the moment, they may actually be supply constrained because right. they they seem to be struggling to produce them at the rate they're being purchased. Right. They did say that they were selling them as fast as they could make them. So. Right. And the evidence seems to back them up on that. Right. Eric? Ooh, I, I don't know if I am either brave <laughs> enough or foolish enough to throw out an actual number. Um, Come on, Abrash. Do it. <laughs> even even Abrash is and running away from his now. numbers now. If, if, if we're going with Abrash's prediction, the time is now. I mean... It's, uh, I don't know. I mean, a lot of it depends on whether you're saying mainstream for gaming or mainstream for, for a wider range of applications. I could see it hitting console levels of, you know, mainstream adoption mid-2020s, 2025, 2026. When you say console levels of adoption, are you talking like current console adoption? Yeah. Or are you talking like Super Nintendo level of adoption? No, rel- relatively close to current console. Okay. Cool. I, think, I think that's a pretty mm-hmm. safe bet. Yeah, I... I... I, I would agree with Eric on, on that, uh, but me personally, I, I would, I would hope for something around twenty twenty three. But again, it, a lot is still up in the air of, you know, when when is Gen two coming out? Um, right. And and we've we have done a a little discussion on what is Gen two, um, but you know. So it's it's kind of hard to to say what they're gonna do, you know. No no one really knows what Oculus and Valves and HTC plans are as of right now, except for them themselves. So it it is pretty hard to to throw a number out there. But uh, I'd say I'm I'm kind of leaning hopefully towards if if everything goes right in my mind, you know, twenty twenty three. Is what I'm I'm saying, Ted. Yeah, as far as the next 
decade goes, I would, I would definitely hope it'd be on the, the front end of that. But I think competition is going to help help drive the speed quite a bit as well, because it feels like the the technology is is coming along faster than it's it's being released that they're kind of giving it breathing room you know for marketing and ad- adoption time and you know biz- other business reasons but uh like we saw with the with the vive where oculus kind of you know gingerly released out the headset and then when the vive came out with the controllers and they were pretty quick on the back end to bring those along too so when we get more out there at the at that same level than the oculus and the vibe you know like maybe the the pimax starts coming up a little bit or some of those other hybrid headsets that are kind of you know being whispered about then we can see uh faster levels of of these newer generations coming out yeah i i, I want to agree that um you know the the technology coming out is definitely going to push um, ad- adoption. Uh, when you look at what Apple's announcements have been about their uh, AR and seemingly VR headset um, uh, mindsets uh, in 2022, 2023 range, um, Qualcomm's announcements with their seven camera um uh, the XR2 chip. Yeah, the, their chip coming down um, in the same time range. It definitely puts us in a scenario where it really looks like that is a market saturation point for the mainstream. All that being said, it, it looks like we're all kind of in agreement that if if all these technologies are transformative in the 2023 plus range... And being transformative is indicative of a next generation platform that maybe this mainstream adoption isn't technically achieved in Gen 1. Right. I think that's kind of where we're landing is, I mean, Gen 1 is inevitably going to do a lot for it, but I don't think it's quite going to get over the hump for what I personally consider mainstream adoption. Um, but it's, it's certainly going to get us pretty, pretty close. Um, and that's good. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll be, we'll be right on the cusp and then gen two hits and, you know, maybe it's, you know, all the hurdles that we've talked about tonight are pretty, they're difficult. They're things that gaming has struggled with for years and, and still does in some, in some spaces, you know, the, the question of is gaming art, are video games art? is still like a question for some people, which is bonkers to me as a lifelong gamer. But, you know, the question of, you know, oh, I I tried VR and, you know, I've done it. Or, you know, like, like we mentioned, for me, it's being able to just go up to a random stranger and ask them what VR is and if they've ever tried it. But I think that's, that's going to be a question that everyone is going to have to ask themselves. Like, have we reached that level? Um, and so to put out a call to people who listen to the podcast, you know, what do you think is going to take us across that, that line? And what do you, what does mainstream VR mean to y'all? And when do you think we'll get there? I think that's a, a good question. So if you have some thoughts on that, please comment, um, send us an email, you know, uh, we've got contact information on our website at HoustonBR.com. you know, reach out, let us know. But, uh, I think we've, we've, 
kind of rounded the bases on this. Oh, what we need to do now is set calendar reminders to look back and see how foolish we feel in uh, three to five years. Yeah, let me... <laughs> Let me just uh, Google, remind me in 2023 uh, to check and see if... VR I think regardless of what happens, William is buying us all scotch. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we hope to see you in the next episode. All right. See you, everyone. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Hey, folks. Just wanted to give you a quick heads up. Um, we are having our December social on December 19th from 7.30 to 9.30 at Zero Latency Houston. Um, you can find details on our website at HoustonVR.com, on our Facebook page, just search Houston VR, or on our meetup page, go to meetup.com slash Houston VR if you want to find more details. We hope to see you there. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Virtually Relevant. If you liked it, please consider rating and reviewing us on your favorite podcast app. It helps bring us up in the charts, makes us easier to find. If you'd like to support Houston VR in this podcast, please also consider becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash Houston VR. Until next time, thanks for listening.